Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, so good to be with you today. Thanks for being here with us this morning, and certainly for all those of you that are watching online, too. And uh, those videos are helpful, aren't they? Man, I, I can watch them over and over again and pick something new up uh, each time. And um, these videos set the stage for what I want to talk with you about uh, this morning. But I want you to consider the setting first. And the Bible Project does a great job of laying this out. If you've been reading along uh, for yourself, you kind of know what's happening here. But Moses, in the Israelites. They've left Egypt uh, and they find them at this place known as Sinai. God's going to use this time uh, to formalize his relationship with the people there. And so he gives them the law to help them understand his holiness and sin and how he wants them to live and to represent God in this world. And God's presence is right there, right? It's right there on the mountain. But now he instructs Moses to build a tabernacle. And this tabernacle would be a dwelling place where he could come down this special place and be in the center of the camp and be with his people much like he was in the Garden of Eden. My friend describes it this way. He says, think of it all like one big marriage ceremony. You've got God and his people, you know, formalizing their relationship, coming together. The law is like the wedding ring. But then Exodus 34 happens. Moses comes down from the mountain and the people have constructed a golden calf and already they've broken the first two commandments. It'd be like having an affair on your honeymoon as my friend describes. And so once again, we're reminded of how great our sin really is. And for a God that desires to live amongst and dwell with his people, like it's up to him to discern how is he going to reconcile both his holiness and our sin and our corruption. There has to be a solution. There has to be a way. And that is where we get to, that's how we get to Leviticus, all right? That's how we get to the book of Leviticus. And maybe you've loved reading Leviticus. If you've hated it, like it ends tomorrow, all right? That's the good thing. If you've caught up, you're almost all the way through it. Maybe you, some of you quit reading the Bible uh, because of the book of Leviticus. This is a good time to, to jump back in. Let's just set it straight. It's an unusual book. There are lots of things in there that are difficult to understand, things that I don't completely understand, but unusual rules about, you know, diet and, and dress and, and reli religious rituals, things like how it's, it's cool to eat locusts, but you're not supposed to eat shrimp. That's not kind of how I view life or how I view what, what I eat. I don't, I don't know about you. From, Le from Leviticus 19, we can discern that the God likes sideburns, you know, because the Hebrew men aren't supposed to cut them and tattoos aren't allowed. Now, I got nothing against tattoos. I'm not really a tattoo person myself. And so I guess that's kind of how we're raising our kids, but we have made one exception for them. We've said, if you make the Olympics one day, mom and dad will pay for the Olympic rings on your arm. Like, seems like a fair trade. You go to the Olympics, it's worth getting the Olympic rings tattooed uh, on your arm. But also in chapter 19, you know, we find that things like polyester is forbidden. And we also read in Leviticus 20 that if you talk back to your parents, it'll get you stoned and not in the way that we typically think about that today. All right. But, but none of this, all right, none of it's intended to make fun of God's word or to bring light to it. But just to point out that Leviticus is different. It's different to read. And you can see why people will wonder at ask questions. Maybe you've asked questions like, like, why do we seem, why does the church seem to follow certain rules that we read about in Leviticus, but, but not others? Like, for example, why, you know, when, when Leviticus prohibits certain sexual behaviors, like we, we're, we're against those or we adhere to those, I guess you should say, but when it says no to shrimp, our only question is usually how much St. Elmo's cocktail sauce can you tolerate, right? I mean, you know, the, the more the better. So are we just picking and choosing what works for us or what's convenient. Not at all. As followers of Jesus, 
we aren't living under the old covenant anymore, and that means that everything that we read and find in the Old Testament doesn't necessarily apply to today. Like, there are things that do, but not all of it. Now, how do we know what's in effect and what's not in effect? Well, a loose principle that I once heard is this, that if it's commanded in the Old Testament and then reaffirmed in the New Testament, it's still for you. Like, it's still true. And, and in the book of Leviticus, you know, Bible scholars uh, mostly agree that there are three different types of laws or three different types of categories of laws that you read about in the book of Leviticus. The, uh, the, you, you could sum them up this way. There, there are civil laws, there are ceremonial laws, and there are moral laws. Now, the civil laws are, are structured specifically for the nation of Israel and had things to do with, like, punishments and making sure those punishments fit the crime. Uh, there were the ceremonial ceremonial laws, of course. These were regulations about purity and, and who was ceremonially pure, who could enter into the tabernacle area. And then there were the moral laws, all right? We read about these moral laws in Leviticus, what God has determined as right and wrong, everything from murder to boundaries about, about sexuality. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, all right, when he came on the scene, he had something really important to say about his relationship to the law. We read it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when Jesus Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what does it mean that Jesus would fulfill the law? Well, it means that everything found in the book of Leviticus ultimately points to him. You know, as Christians, that we have this perspective and, and kind of your curious searching and understanding, like it's okay to look for Jesus in them because Jesus was fully devoted to God. He lived life the way life was intended to be lived. And so he's the perfect fulfillment of everything that the law was actually aiming for. And so think about that. Think about that in light of the three types of laws then we, that we see in Leviticus. Like, again, if we're talking about the civil laws, again, these were the, the laws that were put in place uh, for things like punishment for the crimes. Well, thankfully, we're not bound by Israel's civil laws anymore. All right, they're, you could say they're unusual, they're, they're archaic, but, man, if you were to study ancient civilizations, all right, we're talking 3,500 years ago, some estimate around 1450 BC that these were put into place. When you study ancient civilizations like Egypt and others and get a glimpse on how evil and unjust the world really was, Remember, these people, God had brought his people out of Egypt where they had lived and been influenced for 400 years. And so you could say that not only was God taking them physically out of Egypt, but he had to get Egypt out of them. He had to change their influence. He had to change the way that they thought about things. And so civil laws define the nation of Israel. And this is the nation that Jesus is eventually going to come from. And with his life and death, Jesus established a new Israel. He established a spiritual one. You can call it his church. And so the civil laws don't govern us anymore. Instead, the life of Jesus and the New Testament give us direction for how we should live and operate as Christians and as a church. Again, there were also the ceremonial laws. These were meant to highlight God's holiness and our sinfulness. Thankfully, all of these have been fulfilled in Jesus' sinless life and his sacrificial death on the cross. And as the New Testament book of Hebrews points out, we'll look at that in just a moment. If we've accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, if you've trusted Christ with your salvation and your forgiveness, like we don't need the sacrifices and the rituals found in Leviticus anymore. And then lastly, we're left with the moral laws. 
and what to do with those, these again distinguish between what God sees as good and what he finds to be offensive. These are the laws that still govern us and shape us as followers of of Christ today. And to be clear, Jesus reaffirmed all of the moral law with his life and with his teachings. And not once does he or any of the New Testament writers reverse them. And so as Christians and as a church, we're committed to loving what God loves as well as recognizing sin for what it really is. So all that in mind, saying that the sexual ethics of Leviticus are still relevant today, but that the prohibitions against certain foods and clothing is not, that's not just picking and choosing what we like or what we think works. No, it's interpreting the old in light of the new. All right, and what we see in the new in Christ. And by the way, if you haven't seen the Bible Project video recap on the book of Leviticus, I'd really encourage you to check it out because you'll find it to be very helpful as you're trying to put some of these pieces together. Again, it's very helpful. But here's what I want to do today. If you've got a Bible, turn to Leviticus chapter 16. All right, Leviticus chapter 16. I want to spend the rest of our time uh, focusing on an event that you could say really is the pinnacle of the book of Leviticus. And in this chapter, God's going to give some instructions about a very important day. In fact, it's the most important day on the Jewish calendar and really for the Jews still today. But the interesting thing is that it has incredible significance for our lives and the way we see Christ and his redeeming work, the way that we see it today. But that day that is described in Leviticus 16 is the day known as Yom Kippur or also the Day of Atonement. And here's what the Moody Bible commentary, here's how they kind of summarize, give a brief overview of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. They write this, the ceremonies described in chapter 16 were unique among the priestly rituals. The day was a reminder that the nation's ritual uncleanness imperiled the whole nation before God. Impurity could make God's continued dwelling in their midst impossible. So various sacrifices were needed to purge, and that's where the word Yom Kippur actually comes from. It's known as the day of purgation, but purge uncleanness caused by sin. And then finally, the day of atonement became the holiest day of the year for the Israelites. For on that day, all the sins of the nation were atoned for by a blood sacrifice, all right? So the Day of Atonement took place one day a year. It signified a day when all of the sins of the nation would be atoned for at least for another year. Let's pick it up in Leviticus chapter 16, beginning in verse 2, if you've got your own Bibles. Here's what we read. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place place. Let's pause right there for a second. I want to give you just a quick lesson about the layout of the tabernacle. And if you remember from your reading, uh, if you remember from the video, the tabernacle was the physical representation of God's presence coming down to dwell amongst the nation of Israel. And so God gave instruction to Moses, who gave instruction to the people of, uh, uh, of Israel, how to construct this
this tabernacle and located in the center of the camp. And here's a model uh, of the tabernacle today. Um, I got to see it a few years ago. If you go to Israel, if you go to southern Israel, it's located out in the wilderness and you can get a chance to view it and to walk through of it. And as best as we know, it's a great physical representation of the tabernacle that we see here in Exodus and Leviticus. But there are three important spaces that made up the tabernacle. There was the outer courtyard, all right? There was the holy place just inside of the tent at the very front of the entrance. And then in the very back of the tent, there was this place known as the holy of holies or the most holy place. And any purified person could enter into the outer courtyard, all right? But only the priests were allowed to come into the inner part of the tent and do their work in the holy place. Now, there were some sacred furnishings that maybe you've read about that were located in this holy place area. First, there was the lampstand, or sometimes called the menorah, and it was lit day and night. It was meant to serve as a reminder of God's continual presence with the people. And the Mishnah, which is the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, says it was meant to look like the tree of life, which is kind of interesting. But there was also there the table of showbread, all right, in the same holy place area. It had 12 loaves of bread on it, uh, also called the bread of the presence. The bread symbolized God's continual provision for the people, that he was going to provide for them and meet all of their needs. Next, there was the altar of incense. Again, this is in that same holy place. It stood in, in front of the most holy place, representing two things. First of all, the smoke extending from it was meant to serve as a sort of a visual barrier, all right, uh, separating God's people from his presence in the most holy place. But it also represented prayers being offered up continually before God. And even as the smoke would continue continue into the most holy place, uh, into his presence where they might be answered. Now, separating the holy place from the most holy place was a curtain that looked like this. And it was four inches thick, according to scriptures, made up of blue, red, and purple cords. Uh, and while the priests, again, were allowed to do their work in the holy place, all right, that it front, uh, front center section, no one was allowed to enter the most holy place except the high priest. And he could go in there one day a year. And what day was that? Yom Kippur. All right, the day of atonement. And the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant was located. I think we have an actual picture of it here for you to see. Uh, if you appreciate uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you get that reference. If you don't, I'm sorry. Uh, but here's a picture of what uh, that Ark may have looked like. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was the most special possession. And uh, inside of it was Aaron's staff, a jar of manna, the Ten Commandments. But on the top of the Ark was this area known as the mercy seat, the two cherubim or angelic beings on each side, and that what did the video call it? The hot spot of God's presence was here. It was here in this place. The blood sacrifice would be dripped on the mercy seat, but God's presence was here. And so in the opening of Leviticus 16, God tells Moses that Aaron, his brother, who's the high priest, can't just go in and out of the most holy place whenever he feels like it. In fact, one day a year, the day of atonement is when he could go in. Now, God goes on in chapter 16 to give some specific details about what takes place on that day. I want to share with you for just a moment what Old Testament scholar Ray Dillard has summarized about the preparations of the high priest. 
all right, for this most holy day. And just listen to some of what he describes. He says, you know, a week before Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter seclusion, taken away from his home to a place completely alone so that he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. Uh, clean food was brought to him and he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before Yom Kippur, he would stay up all night praying and reading to purify his soul. And when the day finally arrived, he bathed from head to toe and dressed himself in pure, unstained white linen. When the time was right, he would enter into the most holy place, offer an animal sacrifice to God to atone or pay the penalty for his own sin. After that, he'd come out, he'd bathe again, and a new white linen was put on him so that he could enter in a second time, now sacrificing for the sins of the priest. He would come out, he'd bathe again, a third time so that he could go in new white linen and atone for the sins of all of the people. And from what I've read and what I've studied, it was a day of, of high anxiety, you know, for the high priest of wanting to get it just right, you know. Uh, it was a day of anticipation for the people, you know, looking forward to this day, celebrating this day when their sins would be atoned for, the guilt would be removed. But there's at least one more aspect of the Day of Atonement that I think is pretty special too, pretty cool, that while the priest sacrificed, took the life of a goat, you know, for all the people as a sign of, of, of paying the price, the penalty for sin, there was a second goat that was involved in the ceremony, but this goat wasn't sacrificed it was actually set free. We read about it in verse 10. We read, but the goat chosen by Lot as the Uzazel, which is translated scapegoat, this is where we get our word scapegoat, shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. All right, now let's skip over to verse 21. Here's what happened. He is, the, the priest is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And then here's what he would do next. He shall then send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. And so the Day of Atonement not only included the blood sacrifices, but also this beautiful picture of the removal of guilt and sin from the people, from the nation as this goat was released into the wilderness. Now, just a fun side note, I remember reading this one time about how they released this goat into the wilderness only to have it wander back into the camp a couple of days later. Like, can you imagine the panic when somebody like realizes it? Like, wait a second, that's our, that's our scapegoat. Like our sins are coming back to haunt us once again. And to make sure that that never happened, they actually gave somebody the task to, to take the goat out into the wilderness and push it off a cliff. Like, you know, kill it to make sure that there was no way that it could ever come back again. But here's what we're supposed to see. You see how God's holiness, the law, the tabernacle, Leviticus, the day of atonement, do you see how all of this was just educating and shaping the nation of Israel to help them see what sin is, what it really is, and what it's like, and their need for forgiveness? And at the same time, how God, in his great and amazing love, gave them a way to be freed and to take the guilt away from their sins. And, you know, maybe it's left you thinking, 
whether here today, whether in your own reading, your own studies in the past, like what, what in the world does this have to do with me? Like, like what am I supposed to take away from this? Well, I think we can learn many things. A, a few things that I want to share with you before we close is just this. The first thing is that our, our sin is worse than we think. Uh, it's worse than we realize. Because maybe I haven't taken the time to consider how how bad my sin really is, what it's doing in this world, what it does to relationships, how it impacts my relationship with God. I mean, do you and I, do we realize how quickly we're guilty? We're guilty of things like bending the rules. Uh, we're guilty of things like moving the boundary markers, you know, to make it more convenient. We, we, we move those boundary markers so that we can live the way we want to live, the way that works for us, the uh, because more than I realize, like I can fool myself into thinking that I, I'm, I'm not as bad as you, you know, right? We do that. Like, I mean, we might, maybe we're both bad, but if I'm not as bad as you, well, I mean, maybe that's all that matters. Like, it's kind of like this. Like, what if I offered you a glass of water, not on a day like today, but on a really hot day, you know, I mean, a day when you really need a glass of water, but I, I offer you this glass of water, but I just say to you, hey, you just need to know I actually went to the urinal and I got one just little drop of urine and I added it to that water. Like all of a sudden, that glass isn't so satisfying anymore, right? I mean, even though it's just one drop, like 99% pure, but one drop of urine. Like you're going to think about that. Like you're going to really ask yourself how important. I mean, Bear Grylls can do it, but you're not sure. Like am I really willing to take that risk? Our sin's kind of like that. Like even on our best days, you know, when we try and convince ourselves that we're really not that bad, God is perfect. And he is a holy God, and his holiness demands nothing less than our perfection. And it's not because he's touchy, and it's not because he's a perfectionist. Like, his holiness demands that he must do something about our sin. And the challenge then is that we all fall short. Like, every single one of us, we all fall short. None of us can achieve the holiness. None of us can achieve the perfection that God expects of us on our own. The Apostle Paul makes that very clear. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, For all have sinned, all of us. Christians included, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so we all fall short. None of us is capable of living up to the standard that God has established. The people of Israel couldn't do it on their own. I can't do it on my own. You can't do it on your own either. And the Apostle Paul goes on to say that the wages of sin, the penalty of our sin is death. That's what we deserve. Here's the good news. We also find this in Leviticus, and really the story of Scripture is this, that God's grace is greater than we can imagine. It's much greater than we can imagine. He is a God that is merciful. He is a God that is full of grace. The actions and rebellion of the Israelites prove that even the worst of our sins can't drive God away, even the worst of them. And why did God choose two goats on the Day of Atonement? Well, they illustrate at least a couple of things for us. I mean, one goat was slaughtered again for sin, showing us that the debt of sin, the penalty for sin has been accounted for. It's what theology books will sometimes call justification or just as if I had never sinned when I am justified. It's just as if I've never sinned in Christ's eyes. Like, like justification means that there's literally no more sin. There's no more debt against us. The debt's been paid. It's been settled once and for all. The second goat, the one sin in to the wilderness, it illustrates his cleansing work, you know, because God not only pays the debt, the price for our sins, 
but he is able to remove the stain of sin, the penalty of our sins, that our sins are literally washed as white as snow. And so the first goat shows us that someone else, that a substitute has taken the death in our place, paid the price with its life. The second goat shows us that our sins have no rule over us. They can't define us, all right? They can't shape us. They don't hold us back. They can't do that anymore. Uh, the psalmist says this, Psalm chapter 130. We'll read about this a little later on in the summer. But if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. And on this particular occasion, that word forgiveness literally means a cutting away. But that's the work that God does in our lives when we receive his forgiveness. He cuts away that sin so that it's not attached to us any longer. Our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That our sins are chained to the deepest part of the sea. Now I know that some of you, you might hear something like that and think to yourself, but I've messed up too much. Over and over again, I... My sin's too great. I, I, I'm the exception. Like, I, I, I don't think this could apply to me. Look at, look at verse 16 for a moment, because I got to believe there's somebody like that in the crowd at the Day of Atonement. And so I love these words included in Leviticus 16. You know, in this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. See, even then, it doesn't matter the sin. It doesn't matter whether the other person has forgiven you or not. Uh, it doesn't matter if you've been able to forgive yourself or not. It, no matter what it is, no matter how great our sin is, I promise you, His grace is greater. It's greater. And so here's the bottom line. Our, our hope that we have today, our hope as followers of Jesus um, our hope for you and your curiosity and your seeking out Jesus and life and purpose. Our, our hope isn't in the Day of Atonement. Our, our hope isn't in either of these goats. Our, our hope isn't in the underlying meaning of Leviticus. But ultimately, our hope is in what Leviticus points to. Because the good news is this, that it all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. Like the book of Leviticus teaches us and reminds us of the once and for all healing and saving work of Jesus Christ, that our hope is in him and what Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. Like think about it, look at it like this, that the day of atonement, again, it would last an entire day. And on that day, a goat would be sacrificed. The other would be released. Sin would be accounted for until the morning, until the next day when sin was once again present for all the people and all of his punishment. And Jesus is going to change all that. Jesus is going to come on the scene. 1,500 years later, he's going to change all that. His fingerprints are all over the book of Leviticus and the Day of Atonement because 1,500 years later, Jesus would come on the scene. And I love what the writer John said about Jesus, a friend of Jesus. Here's what he said about Jesus and his arrival. He called him the Word, which we don't have time to get into that and why he called him the Word. But he's talking about Jesus here. He said, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And I highlighted that word dwelling there because, you know, the Greek word, the same word for dwelling is also the word tabernacle. That Jesus came and tabernacled among us. Like, can you imagine? Can you imagine what that did for the people of Israel? 
Like every Israelite knew that the closest that he or she could ever get to the presence of God was the outer court of the tabernacle and eventually the temple. And only if you were ceremonially clean. But now Jesus is going to turn that type of thinking upside down and remove it once and for all. Because Jesus, God in the flesh, he came to this earth and grew into a man so that he could live with us. And what did he do? He lived a perfect, holy life. He fulfilled every expectation that God has ever had for you and me. And he did it all the way up to the final week of his life where you begin to notice that it's almost as if Jesus is preparing for a day of atonement of his own, just like the high priest did in Leviticus. I, I appreciate the way Pastor J.D. Greer describes that connection. He says it like this. He says, think about how intentional Jesus was. From his entrance on Palm Sunday to the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane where he stayed up all night praying just like the high priest before the Day of Atonement. And Jesus wasn't clothed in rich garments like the high priest wore. No, he was arrested and eventually stripped of the only garment he had. And instead of being cheered on by the people for this great day of celebration, he was rejected by them and abandoned by nearly everyone he loved. And he wasn't bathed in a purifying pool, but rather by human spit. And when he came before God, he didn't receive in words of encouragement, but instead the father turned his face away and he was struck dead, even though he wasn't guilty. And on the cross when he died, what did he cry? It is finished, which also translated means the debt is paid in full. Friends, Jesus is the final, perfect sacrifice for our sins. He's the scapegoat, the one who bore our sins with his life, carried them to the grave, never to come back and haunt us again. And if you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9, we'll end with this. You know, the author of Hebrews uh, spends the time working through all of these things that you read about and things like the book of Leviticus and again how they're ultimately pointing to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 9 in the first few verses we're not going to read all of these. He describes the first two rooms and all of the pieces that you see in those rooms, the lampstand, the showbread, the altar of incense, the ark of the covenant. But in verse 6, and if you want to just listen, let me read. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Here's what we read. When all these things were in place, again, he's talking about the elements of the tabernacle. The priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sin and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time for the gifts and the sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. Verse 11, so Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands. It is not a part of this created world. But with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the holy place, most holy place, once for all time, and secured our redemption 
forever. And then verse 14 to close. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's the message. That's the hope. Christ died for you. He died for you. He gave his life for you once and for all to pay the debt that you and I could never pay with our lives. And when you trust Christ and you put your faith in him and receive his forgiveness and redemption as your own, here's what Christ does for us, God does for us. Not only does he forgive our sins and begin that work of removing the guilt from our lives, but you know what the New Testament also says? That God gives us Jesus' righteousness. That basically when he sees us now, he sees Christ. He sees Jesus, the perfect sacrifice once and for all. That's hope. That's why we can live. That's why we can keep trusting, living for him, doing everything that we can to model our lives after our Savior. Will you pray with me? And uh, as we pray today, you know, as a Christian, the hope that you have is that you have the forgiveness of Christ in your lives. And that doesn't mean we're not going to still go on sinning because we're not perfect. Not yet, at least. Not until Christ returns again. But we do have a hope. We have a person that we can go to. We can confess our sins and he is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, maybe you need to spend some time with the Lord this morning just being reminded of your forgiveness. Maybe there are some things that you need to turn over to him and uh, just be reminded of the hope that you have in him today. But there may be some of you here today, there are some of you that are watching online right now. You've never trusted Christ with your life. You've never received his forgiveness. It's available. It's for you. He died for you. He died so that you can be forgiven and have life in him. And uh, if you've never received that before, uh, you can pray even where you are right now. Just pray, Lord Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I need your hope in my life. Forgive me. Cleanse me. God, we thank you for the hope that we have in your son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the perfect and final sacrifice, our Redeemer, that you made a way, God, through your son so that we could have life and hope in you. Man, release us today of the burdens that hold us back. Help us to see what you see. Jesus in us his righteousness in our lives. And I pray for that man or woman. I pray for that student or kids listening today that has never trusted Christ as their Savior, that maybe today would be the day and we can celebrate and we can worship you not only today, but with every day of our lives for the hope that we have, the forgiveness that we have. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.